This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We're talking real money. Welcome to my favorite podcast of the week. It's Talking Real Money's Friday Q&A Day. Hi, I'm Don. Welcome to our little get-together. Glad you could be a part of it. Today's the day when I go to all of those questions. Well, not all. Between usually five and six typically. Questions that were left by you at TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form by pressing the button and saying, record my voice, which almost always works out better than a phone call to our number 855-935-TALK. So um, without further ado, let's do what we do and like doing, and that is answering questions. Well, you listening to me answering questions. Think you like it. Hope so. Let's go. Thank you, Tom and Don, for taking my call. I emailed in a question last year, and I was shocked when I actually got a phone call from Thomas Cock about a week later. He really did call me back, so that was pretty cool. So I'm a 49-year-old police officer, and Tom gave me a recommendation for act, uh, allocating my portfolio to 30% overseas equities. 25% small cap, 20% bonds, 17% S&P, and 8% REIT. So even though I called and asked for the advice, I knew what Tom was telling me was the right thing to do. It took me over a month to change my allocation. I just couldn't bring myself to sell. So on a side note, for all those people who call in and say, why do I need an advisor? That's why, to do the things for you that you won't do for yourself. Anyway, so that brings me to my question. How do I know when it's time to rebalance? My overseas equity is already up to 34% and my small cap is down to 22%. The others are relatively the same. So how far off from my allocation should trigger a rebalance? What do I need to be looking for? Thank you for all y'all do. And I love the show. Look forward to hearing your response. Tom is going to ruin his reputation if he keeps being nice to people. No, oh, yeah, he actually likes doing all he does. He just gets a kick out of helping you guys, particularly on a one-on-one. I'm so much more comfortable doing it this way. I don't know what it is with me. Get up on a stage. I can talk in front of a lot of people, but one-on-one, I'm not as good at. Tom's great. And I'm glad he, I'm glad he helped. It sounds like he created a, a great portfolio. It sounds properly diversified. And... <laughs> You made the point. I, I I mean, for years I've said, yeah, people, do, they can do this on their own. Most people, most people. I don't believe that anymore because we've seen too many people who've come to us and said, I listen to you religiously. I follow all your advice. And then we look at their portfolio and it's full of individual stocks, loaded funds, maybe an annuity, nothing, nothing like what we preach, nothing like it. So uh, thanks for that nice plug for the business. And it is the business. It's if you can find the right ones, that's the trick. 
That really is the trick in this environment, finding the right advisors. But back to your your question, your portfolio. I Again, you're illustrating why discipline, the discipline of an advisor or just your personal discipline is the key to making this work. I would rather see you pick a date, your birthday, the end of the year, Valentine's Day, the end of June, you know, where it's halfway through the year, whatever it is, pick a date. And on that date, every year, you sit down and you change your portfolio so that whatever the allocation was returns back to what it should be. I like doing it at the beginning of the year because when you get to retirement, rebalancing is the right time to take money out of your portfolio, to to uh, use the total return strategy that we talk about, take money out of your portfolio to live on the rest of the year. And so in that way, you, you, you first take your distribution that you're going to take for the year out of the money that you have too much of. For example, in your case, you'd be reducing the amount in international. And some of that would just come out and and be money to live on. So you rebalance once a year unless things really get out of whack. And by really out of whack, I'm talking some say 5 some say 10%. So if you were at 35 in international, you'd probably be at a point where you'd Consider rebalancing off schedule, but once a year for most people, it's just about right. Thanks for your call and thanks for listening. And please tell everybody you know about us. Okay. Now let's go to the next one again. Sent in through spoken in through talkingrealmoney.com. Hello, Tom and Don. My question is I currently use Schwab Intelligent Portfolio for myself and my wife's. Roth, would it be smarter to use a percentage of AVGE, AVUV, and AVDV, and a percentage of 75, 20, and 10, or 70, 20, and 10 to maximize growth in our Roths? I don't want any bonds in our Roth because of growth potential. Thank you. Well, I don't know what Schwab has in your uh, intelligent portfolio account, so I can't really compare and contrast. But I can say that for someone who understands without question the high degree of volatility that a portfolio like you lay out provides, AVGE, which is the Avantis all market, total market fund. Uh, the AVUV, which is Avantis small cap value, U.S. small cap value, and AVDV, which is Avantis international small cap value. Those That portfolio is going to be wildly volatile. Uh, my guess is worst case one year loss in the realm of maybe about 60% plus, maybe 70 if you can stomach that, because you will never market time your way in and out of those kinds of messes, you just have to wait or invest more, uh, then this would be a very good portfolio. Really, really well diversified with a big tilt towards small companies, smaller and, and value companies. However, there's one thing I would change. 
the Avantis Total Market Fund, AVGE, is 70% U.S. and 30% international. We believe that's not enough in international. And then when you add in AVUV, which is all U.S., your portfolio allocation gets all out of whack, U.S. to international. So what I might do is flip the allocation where AVUV is 10% and AVDV is 20%. Now, a lot of people who are um, a little U.S.-centric won't like that, but we believe very strongly in a global balance. So that would be my suggestion, again, with the caveat that this is aggressive. This is very aggressive, um, but long-term, it could be very lucrative. It had, it has been in the past, a portfolio like this. Thanks so much for being a part of the podcast. And now, another question. Hey, guys, this is the first time I've ever actually used the microphone on this computer, so we'll see if it actually works or not. So I took your risk uh, tolerance quiz, and uh, it kind of spit out that I should be 80% into global equities. And uh, most of the time, generally, I've been over the years in VTSAX, uh, which is just the Vanguard broad domestic market, pretty much everything um, in equities. And my question is, and I have also heard you say um, you recommend as far as a global equity, VT. And my question is, as far as that portion of uh, how I might convert or maybe work my way into more of a global profile from VTSAX, what is the difference between VT, which is obviously uh, an ETF, a broad global market, versus the uh, index thereof, which is VTWAX. Um, they seem very similar, um, almost mirror images of each other, though one acts as an index and one acts as an ETF. Do you see there being much of a difference, a suggestion? Um, and then further on, you know, I would probably get 20% into BNDW, which is the broad market uh bond fund, which you guys have suggested, and then 10% VBR. But just for the uh, the overall general global equity, I'm just curious what you think the big differences between VT and VTWAX. And I really enjoyed your uh, your risk quiz. I really like the, uh, the layout. Thank you very much. Yeah, I love the risk quiz too. It's actually fun. I do them every once in a while just to see if my, my risk tolerance remains the same. And Darned if it doesn't, uh, even as I've aged. it's It was created by a guy in Great Britain. It's a terrific tool. I looked at a lot of them, and it was the one that I thought was best. And really, it's based on on a lot of academic research, all the questions. So, uh, And by the way, if you've never taken it, it really is free. I know people don't believe this. It's like, well, is it really free? What's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen. You're going to get your score. Okay, which is going to help you figure out how to invest for your risk tolerance, which is only part of the process, but it's it's an important part. Anyway, on to your question, VT versus VT Wax, the Vanguard Total Market ETF versus the Vanguard Total Market Mutual Fund. 
What is the big difference? Well, the structure is probably the biggest difference because the way ETFs are structured, there are both tax advantages and trading advantages. And it shows up in the returns. It actually does. The VT Wax, although the difference in their fees is low, VT Wax, the fund, is uh, one-tenth of 1% per year in fees, 0.10 basis points. The uh, VT is seven one-hundredths of 1%. So it's a difference. It's not huge in terms of dollars. But if you look at them over the exact same periods, and they're really basically the exact same portfolio, you'll see something really curious. You'll see that the VT performance is more than the fee fractionally better, still only fractionally better, but slightly better than the fee. And that could be related to trading costs. It has to be because there's really nothing else. The other thing, though, is that in an account that is not tax advantaged, like an IRA, 401k, Roth, or whatever it is, VT is going to give you some tax advantages because VT does not distribute capital gains. Uh, although I think VT Wax doesn't either. No, I'm not sure. Not, I'm not 100%. Uh, but it should have a slight tax advantage. Other than that, you want to flip a coin? That's about how big the difference is going to be. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I like the ETF. Oh, and there's a downside, actually, to ETFs. When you buy them and sell them, there is a bid-ask spread. Now, with something that trades as often as VT does, that is tiny. It's really, really tiny, but there is a spread. And if you go with some some brokers, you might pay a commission. But if you stick with the discounters like Schwab or Fidelity, you're not. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And your, and your computer mic sounds a lot better than your phone mic probably sounds, at least given the cellular services and how crunchy they can be. Again, send your questions in at TalkingRealMoney.com or call 855-935-TALK. But uh, on Fridays, unless we are short, which we never are, uh, we pretty much stick with those that come in from TalkingRealMoney.com like this. Hi, Tom and Don. I'm wondering about um, a brokerage firm called Pershing, P-E-R-S-H-I-N-G. I don't know that I've heard you talk about that. I'm talking to a CFP uh, who works with that particular um, group, and I'm just wondering what you think about them. Thank you so much. This is Marcia. Because this CFP works with Pershing, I would be a little reluctant to go with this person right off the bat without further research. Because Pershing tends to be used most by people who are in the commissioned or the dual registered space. And remember, despite the fact that the CFP board claims that CFPs must act as fiduciaries, my guess is the vast majority, and this is my guess, of CFPs work for commissioned firms and accept commissions and therefore cannot possibly be acting as a fiduciary at those times. So uh, you might want to dig a little deeper. Just dig a little deeper. Let me tell you a couple of ways you can dig a little deeper. First, go to their website and see if they are 
solely registered with the SEC as an investment advisor. If anywhere in there it says member FINRA, F-I-N-R-A, then you are dealing with someone who is not always required to act as a fiduciary. Now, they may choose to, but what I'm, I, I just don't get why anyone who wants to be a true fiduciary advisor would ever work with a wirehouse, would ever work with a commissioned firm, because it, even if you're doing it on the up and up, it calls into question your ethics. Doesn't mean they're bad. It just, it just makes you suspicious. Then the other thing you can do is go to brokercheck.org. <laughs> this is a good trick. Type in the person's name. And if it comes up with a little box that says, go to the SEC website on their little name block, then you have another reason to be suspicious. That would mean the same thing. If they're not listed there as a broker, then and they send you to advisorinfo.sec.gov, um, then it's you're dealing with someone who's not always a fiduciary. So check people out. A CFP does not always mean a fiduciary. It does not. I wish the uh, CFP board would clean that up. That would make it so wonderful. It really would. It would make it so easy because you could say, CFP, always a fiduciary. That, yeah, that is somebody you should work with. Wish I could say that. I do. I truly wish I could say that. I can't because it's not true. All right. Another question coming up. Hey, Tom and Don. Jason here in Justin, Texas. First, want to thank you guys for advertising on Clark Howard. I found you there. And since then, you've really challenged me to take a look at our situation. I'm, uh, my wife and I are in our early 40s, doing, doing pretty well. Um, but since uh, with your guys' guidance, we've, we've really realigned our, our investments uh, for the future. Um, getting a lot of good info on the retirement side of things from the website. But a couple things I wanted to ask. We've got a UTMA uh, for our son who's six years old. And it's at Fidelity, just like all of our money now. And I was wondering if you had any specific uh, fund uh, suggestions for that account. It's got about 6000 in it now, but every gift he gets, all that cash just goes into that. And the thought is one day he'll grow up and uh, he'll have a good chunk of money there. Um, let's see. The other one was we keep um, our brokerage account kind of doubles as our um, emergency fund, or actually that's the point of it right now. And I was wondering if you could um, elaborate a little bit more on some of the short-term or um, emergency fund appropriate investments you guys might recommend there at Fidelity. That's it. Really grateful for you guys. Thanks a bunch. And I hope to hear back. The best part about being a six-year-old investor is that you really don't care about the money. It's not going to bother you if the market takes an 80% dive for a while. It's just not going to bother you. And when you've got the added benefit of relative stuffing money in along the way, even when prices are down, bonus. So I would be really aggressive with a six-year-old. This is not money this child is going to need at any set date. If when they get to the age of majority, it's down, you know, we have the longest bear market in history. It, is it going to change the life of the kid? No, no. So you have this golden opportunity to be crazy, to just go good crazy. Like go with uh, 
AVUV, the Avantis Small Cap Value Fund. Very aggressive. Or maybe do a combination of AVUV and AVDV or uh, add in uh, AVGE or just use that, which is the total market, a little less aggressive. Uh, any of those or, or VT or whatever. Um, as long as you're going for a broadly diversified portfolio, I'm going to be happy. Your kid will end up being happy in the long term. You will too, I guess. But we don't know. We don't know the future. Um, but I would be aggressive. This was If this was my money, I'd be AVUVing it all over the place. And as for your brokerage emergency money, there's nothing right now that's a whole lot better for emergency money. If this is money you want absolutely safe, and that's generally the case, and you're with Fidelity, Get brokered CDs. Right now, you could build a portfolio of very short brokered CDs from like you know, one month at 5% out to five years at 5% or more, giving you a really nice yield. But, but ladder them and then please have the discipline to follow the ladder. If you've got a new CD that comes due, you've got like a three-month CD that comes due, Roll that right out to five years. Then the next one that comes due, right out to five years again. And then you know, as they as they come due, you roll them back out to a longer maturity. Or you keep some in a money market, and then you keep one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year CDs. But I think right now, that's a great way to go. Just ladder them, and then there's no risk. Zero. You're, as long as you don't try to take them out early, you're not going to ever lose anything. Thanks for your question, and let's get in one more call, shall we? Hey, Tom Adon, this is Matt from Utah. Hey, got a quick question. I was listening to Rick Ferry speak on a Bogleheads interview, and he was talking about the five-factor model and how oftentimes once a factor is discovered, it no longer works. And he talked about small cap value and how it really worked in the past, but over the last 20 years, since it's been more discovered, it really hasn't outperformed. And so I would love to hear you both gentlemen talk about this factor model, because I know you're a big proponent of small cap value. I have as part of my portfolio, but Rick Ferry made a very good point, and I just thought I'd get your input on that. Thank you. Well, <laughs> in my many years doing this stuff, Rick Ferry has always been a bit of a rabble rouser. Uh, he tries to make noise to, and it gets him attention. I mean, he and Larry Swedro, whom we admire greatly, who we admire greatly. Yeah. Who we admire greatly. They, they have gone head to head lately on stuff, just button heads. I mean, Rick years ago, years ago, Rick was slamming all of us in the industry for charging too much in fees and saying we should only charge like half a percent. But the reality was, unless you got to this huge portfolio with him, he on smaller portfolios, he was charging as much or more than a lot of the rest of us. He just has a way. He, he grates on me just a little sometimes. But hey, well, some other, some people do. I probably grate on him. But... I just looked up the numbers. And, and here's the thing. It, value has outperformed growth most of the time, but not all of the time. Not in every rolling 10-year period. It's about, I mean, value's outperformed about 7, 70% of the time or so over large. And I think small is similar to maybe 80% over any rolling 10-year period. 
Um, and I looked at 20 years. The S&P 500, including dividends, over the last 20 years has returned just under 10% per year on average. Pretty good. The small cap value index has performed 10.4% over that same period. Now, to me, that doesn't sound like it lost. And we had many, many years. We had the longest run, one of the, I think it was the longest run historically, of value underperforming. And why was that? Why did value underperform growth so dramatically? Because the growth stocks were really getting all the media attention and the individual investor attention. But when value stocks get cheap enough, people buy them. And uh, that happened in 2022. Value had a great year in 2022. So, and remember, value is more aggressive, more risky than growth. Uh, small is more aggressive, more risky than growth. And factors aren't something that they find a, a new one of every other day. I mean, Gene Fama says he's seen maybe five factors that have legs in his 50-plus year career. And he's a Nobel Prize winner. I got to tell you, if I was going to listen to a Nobel Prize winner versus Rick Ferry, I'd probably listen to the Nobel Prize winner. If I was going to listen to a Nobel Prize winner over Don McDonald, I'd probably listen to the Nobel Prize winner. Just, just saying. Uh, so uh, do we know what's going to happen in the future? No. But remember, Rick is trying to get press. That's what is good for rick well it's what's good for all of us but he's he's got unique ways of doing it i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with him i think he's he's a bright man he's got great things to share but sometimes he goes off the deep end a little bit and kind of i don't know another metaphor pushes the envelope <laughs> i'm not gonna get into it but I can make an argument for small cap value, and it's a darn good one. So thanks for being a part of our podcast. Well, today it's mine. Tom doesn't get to share it with me. Tomorrow he'll share it with me. For those of you who listen to this when it comes out on Friday, every Saturday, Tom and I get together and we take questions live. Not as many of you take advantage of that as I would have thought. We have two full hours every Saturday where you can call us live at 855-935-TALK. Just make sure you don't call until a little after 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. And don't call after 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 Pacific. But pretty much every Saturday, I think the only one we've ever taken off was a Christmas Saturday together. I think so. Uh, you can call us and we will talk with you one-on-one. And if you want to learn more about everything we do, you want to attend classes, all that cool stuff, just go to TalkingRealMoney.com. We don't have classes a lot. We have one coming up. Go to TalkingRealMoney.com and check it out. There's all kinds of great stuff there, including the risk quiz we talked about. And um, do me a favor. Lately, we've gotten some grumpy reviews, really, really grumpy reviews. People who don't like the fact that we kid around a little bit. For some reason, some people are just way too serious. Uh, if you're one of the people who kind of likes that we kid around a little bit and enjoys the podcast or the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, a, a nice one. 
if you want. Thank you so much for being a part of it. I do appreciate you. And tomorrow, well, pretty much every day, Tom and or I will hang around with you talking real money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. That should keep the lawyers happy.